Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. My name is Dr. Justin Laymiller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. On today's episode, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Eli Finkel, a professor at Northwestern University with appointments in the psychology department and the Kellogg School of Management. He is also author of the best-selling book, The All or Nothing Marriage, How the Best Marriages Work. In this show, we're going to be talking all about marriage and relationships and how to make them better. Specifically, we'll be discussing how and why expectations around marriage have changed, science-backed tips that can help your relationship to thrive, whether opening up a marriage can save it, how to maintain a hot and healthy sex life in a long-term relationship, and so much more. I can't wait for this conversation, so let's get to it. Hi, Eli, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Justin, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for taking the time to join me. I haven't seen you in a long time, but I am thrilled to have a chance to catch up and talk a little bit about your work. But before we dive into that, I always like to ask my guests about their professional journey. So can you tell us a little bit about your backstory? So how did you become a social psychologist who studies romantic relationships? What drew you to this area? Well, for a while there, my uh, backstory was was pretty linear, like surprisingly straightforward. I, I had a sense in high school that this sort of professor thing sounded pretty cool. And so my job in college was just to figure out what topic interested me the most that might make sense for me to get a PhD in. And I took intro to psych my freshman year, and I took social psych my junior year. And then I went through the social psych textbook again afterward and thought, well, which of these chapters was the most interesting to me? And the one on relationships was the one that seemed pretty great. And then I applied to work with a bunch of people who'd been cited in that chapter. This was really before people were using the internet in any meaningful way. This is 96 or something. And then, yeah, went to work with Carol Rusbolt, one of the luminaries in our field, as you know, at the University of North Carolina. And then did a postdoc with Peggy Clark, another luminary in the field, and then came here, I guess, 18 years ago. And all was well until fairly recently when I decided some of the stuff that we know about relationships also seems potentially relevant to the catastrophic state of our politics. I don't think we'll get into that one today, but everything was linear until the last couple of years when my interest started to shift a little bit. Well, thank you for sharing that. And I know you've worked with a lot of amazing people in this field. And you mentioned Carol Rusbold, who is kind of my academic grandmother. She was my advisor's advisor. So we share a common academic family tree in yeah. some ways. So let's talk about marriage since you've written like the book on it. And I love this book. I've recommended it to so many people. So I'm excited to, you know, finally have a chance to, to talk to the author about it. But as a starting point, I think I want to address this idea of how marriage has changed over the last century or so. I know it's changed in a lot of ways. You know, for example, if you look at statistics now, the marriage rate in the U.S. is at or near a record low. We also know that people are waiting longer to get married. It used to be that people got married closer to age 20. Now it's closer to age 30 for their first marriage. And also what people want out of their marriages has changed too. So tell us a little bit about that. How have our expectations or desires around marriage changed over the last century? Yeah. And I don't know if you found this too, but this was one of the great fun things about writing a, a book for a general audience is, you know, 
social psychologists, people like you and I, we run our studies, we bring couples into the lab and we video record them and we follow them over time. And I'm extremely proud to be associated with that intellectual tradition. But I don't think we've done a particularly good job of thinking through cultural differences or historical differences. And so one of the things that that I decided to do some years back was to get a better sense of the anthropology of marriage, the history of marriage, get a, the economics of marriage, get a broader sense of the way other people outside of my home discipline have been thinking about these issues. And I was kind of blown away by what I learned. And, and really, I was blown away by how much I was taking things for granted that were very historically and culturally situated. You know, for example, as you know, the, the historians and the, the sociologists have done a great job of telling us how the institution of marriage, and by that I mean sort of middle-class expectations of what makes for a good marriage, have changed. And a couple hundred years ago, nobody stood at the altar and said, I'm marrying you because you're my best friend, right? That is a very new set of ideas. And, and we're not particularly aware of how those things have changed. And awareness of how the changes have happened, I think, helps to inform us today of how we can make our own marriages better. So uh, thank you for sharing that. And when it comes to the expectations that we have for marriage, you mentioned this idea that people expect their partner to be their best friend. And that's one of the newer changes. But one of the key points that you make in your book is that we're actually expecting a lot more from our marriages now than we did before. And with great expectations often comes great disappointment, right? The more we expect of anything, whether that's a marriage, a new job, acting out a sexual fantasy, the easier it is for things to fall short of that expectation. So what's the answer to that? You know, do we need a reality check? Do we need to lower our expectations? What are your thoughts on that? You know, it's funny. I mean, there's two just little backdrop pieces of information. The, the first is because you and I come from basically the exact same intellectual lineage in social psychology, interdependence theory, and so forth, there's a lot of work about how, you know, no matter what your circumstances are, you'll be less happy with them if your expectations are high than if they're low. And when I initially set out to write this book, it had some terrible working title that was something like The Freighted Marriage. And the idea was like, my goodness, look at all this stuff that we're asking of this one relationship today relative to in the past. And I think maybe the single most eye-opening thing that happened to me as I went into those other literatures and I learned more about um, you know, the changes that have happened, not only on the order of decades, but also on the order of centuries, is I wasn't totally wrong. We are asking a ton more of our marriage. But it turns out that there are really major ways in which we're asking a lot less. And so the story wasn't really just one of us asking more and more and more. It was changing the nature of those asks. And the thing that's really vivid for me is a couple hundred years ago, people literally looked to their spouse for basic survival things, literally food clothing, shelter, the production of light. People made the candles, right? And it was the family that made the candles. Sure, you did some bartering, but nobody kissed somebody goodbye and went to work at the office, or almost nobody did, right? The individual farmhouse was the unit of economic production. You and I, we tried to figure out how to survive in an era without uh, air conditioning, without supermarkets. And, and so, those sorts of expectations that we would need of our partner were absolutely essential before. And 
they're not meaningless now. It's not like we don't care about marrying somebody who is a good provider. But the life and death nature of the marriage decision has largely gone away. And, and I think we are well served to recognize that that is a significant reduction in what we're asking. So as you know from the book, I, I eventually realized that, that the shift isn't really about asking more versus asking less exactly. It's I I framed it in terms of Maslow's hierarchy, right? We used to look to marriage to fulfill those of you, the listeners who've seen Maslow's hierarchy will remember that there's the physiological and safety needs at the bottom, you know, making sure we don't freeze to death, maybe making sure we have enough food in the middle is like love and belonging sorts of needs. And then it's really toward the top that we look to esteem and self-actualization needs. And so I think we're asking a lot less at the bottom when it comes to what we're looking for in a marriage, but a whole lot more at the top of Maslow's hierarchy. Yeah. And I think the way that you describe that is beautiful for emphasizing why you need that historical and cultural perspective when you're trying to understand relationships and how they've changed and evolved over time. Because you can't just look at, well, what are the expectations that we have today? You have to look at how the world around us has changed at the same time. And that changes what we want or need from our relationships. And since you mentioned Maslow, fun side story about him, since this is the Sex and Psychology podcast, when Maslow was the president of the American Psychological Association, he was actually a vocal advocate for nude psychotherapy. And, you know, back in the late 60s, early 70s, there was this whole nude psychotherapy movement where they thought that getting naked with strangers was a way of finding your more authentic self. And so Maslow died at a relatively youngish age. So it would have been interesting if he would have stuck around further because once he wasn't around, they didn't have that really strong advocate for nude psychotherapy. So it might look very different today if Maslow was still here. Well, I mean, let me ask you, I mean, you're more expert on this stuff than I am. I mean, I I hear what he's saying, right? That that being authentic and vulnerable, that these are, are difficult and complex, multifaceted things. You tell me, I mean, do you, do you hold any sort of optimism for the idea that all else equal therapy is likely to be a little bit better, at least for some people, if it's nude? <laughs> oh, man, I'm not sure how much I want to go out and stake <laughs> a wager on that. What I can tell you is that there is demonstrated empirical benefit of spending time naked. It doesn't have to be in a therapy office, but when people participate in randomized controlled trials of social nudity versus you know social clothed uh, interactions that people who engage socially in the nude they feel better about themselves they develop more self-confidence and so it, it kind of also makes me wonder just about spending more time naked with your partner you know if there might be some benefits in that so i don't know maybe maybe a future study on that Let's get back to your book. So you and Esther Perel often talk about how within marriage, there's this expectation of partners meeting all of our needs, including needs that are seemingly in conflict with one another, right? So one example is we have this need for our partners to provide stability and security and and to be our rock. But at the same time, we have this need for surprise and excitement. You know, we want a partner who's constantly going (laughs) to surprise us in exciting ways. We also often want partners who are going to help us to be the best, most authentic version of ourselves. But at the same time, we don't want our partners to be a harsh critic of us, right? So we want them to push us to grow, but not to criticize us. So how do we manage these sorts of conflicting needs in a relationship? You know, how do you find the right balance when it comes to doing that? Well, 
there won't be a one size fits all solution to these, but I do think a good place to start is to acknowledge these complexities. And I don't get the feeling, and here I don't have data, like it would be great to do a a study of people as they step onto the altar and be like, hey, just before you say I do, I have some questions. You know, to what extent have people thought in terms of resources, um, time, emotional energy, attention, these things being finite? To what degree um, have they said, these are the things that are truly essential that this one relationship helped me meet? These are the things that are essential that happen with this relationship as opposed to on my own or with other friends or relatives or whatever. These are the things that I'm not going to ask of my partner, right? Like this idea that we just hurl more and more emotional and psychological needs on this one, you know, basically mule for us. It's costly. And, and, and let me just start with one that I, I, I think is it's, you know, pretty close to home for, for you and your listeners, which is there is just a very widespread assumption of, of monogamy till death. And I have no objection to that. I think that's probably a great setup for many and maybe even most people. But I wish that when people made the decision that monogamy till death is one of the criteria that I'm going to hold to declare my marriage adequate, that they thought, well, what what does that mean? Are there other things that I'm not asking for? Am I? Is it incumbent on me to stay in a certain type of shape if I'm going to require that my partner never be, you know, with anybody else? Will I be obligated to have sex with some frequency that I'd rather not have? Um, like I think there are a bunch of complex questions that come with every major ask that we make of our relationship. And to the degree that we've made these decisions about what we're asking without even really being cognizant of them as being asks, of being expectations, they're just accepted as defaults that everybody needs to have. Anybody who's looked at the cultural and historical background for marriage knows that these are highly culturally relative decisions. Uh, the, you know, there were People, the troubadours, you know, were really into romance, but like not with your wife. What sort of sicko are you? Um, And so we make these decisions without really thinking carefully about them. And I think the lack of care, the lack of thought about if I'm going to ask these things, how will that actually change the way I live my life? How will that influence the way I spend my time and attention and my emotional resources? Do I really want to make these sorts of commitments? Because we end up making too many of them for the amount of, of time and emotional energy that we have available. Yeah, and this is reminding me a little bit of a recent paper that Samantha Joel published. She was a guest a, a couple of episodes ago where she was talking about how we just sort of slide into our relationships without making a lot of you know careful decisions, not putting a lot of thought and planning into it. It just kind of happens. Like one day you're like, oh shit, like I'm deep into this relationship. And it's actually a lot easier to get into a relationship than it is to get out of one. And, you know, so when we go into these relationships, we often just make all these assumptions. Like for example, that we're going to be monogamous, but we never define what monogamy is or what we're going to do to to try and maintain that. And, you know, monogamy is one of those things that that does seem to be a pretty big ask because if it wasn't, you know, the rate of infidelity wouldn't be what it is. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad you brought up 
consensual non-monogamy because that was actually going to be my next question because I was thinking about, you know, in terms of how people manage these conflicting needs in their relationships. One of the big things that draws people to consensual non-monogamy is this idea of diversified need fulfillment. You can have different partners who meet different needs and it's not just about sex. You know, let's say your primary partner is somebody who isn't into playing tennis, but you have another partner who is, right? And so you've got that chance to explore different sides of yourself, both in and out of the bedroom. And you can also, you know, sexually speaking, explore different sexual sides of yourself. You know, for example, in some of my studies on consensual non-monogamy, I have some people talk about how, you know, maybe with their primary partner, they're very vanilla, but with their friend with benefits or secondary partner, they're very kinky, right? And so it provides that opportunity to explore the self to meet different needs. So I'm curious to hear a little bit more about your thoughts on, you know, sort of when and for whom you think opening up a relationship might be a solution to making that marriage work. Yeah, yeah, I mean, hugely important question. I should begin by saying that that I think um, you know there's a, a cottage industry of advocacy for consensual non-monogamy, and I disidentify from that. I, I believe it to be something that people should think carefully about for themselves, and that many people probably would have better marriages and more satisfying satisfying lives if they did it, if they pursued consensual non-monogamy. That said, I don't know if it's the majority of people. It wouldn't be surprising to me if it's not. And the risk is very real, right? So, so you might think, well, okay, you know, a lot of people are saying that, that this is something we should do. Why don't we give this a, a shot? If we had perfect ability to forecast our emotional experiences in the future, then that would be fine. But how will I really feel? Like we might say, you, you know, you and I, Justin, might say, all right, we're allowed to see other people. And then I started seeing somebody, but the rule was I wasn't supposed to develop real feelings. Well, okay. I mean, let's not pretend that I can really guarantee that. Or you might say that, like, you're not going to be jealous, right? And then, like, whoops, I thought I wasn't, but now I am. And and so I, I just want to be clear, because I'm about to say why I think there's some serious upsides to considering a non-monogamous life. I just, I don't think it's for everybody, and it's naive to pretend that this isn't a risky way to go. On the other hand, Monogamy hasn't solved all the problems, and we can't pretend that there's no risk uh, with with that option as well. It depends on the, the set of risks that the individuals and the couple or the throuple or whatever that they would like to take. It, you know, it is an interesting fact, I think, you should correct me if you disagree, I'm getting this largely from your book, that people have kind of insubordinate sex, sexual desires, sexual drives. The, the things that people like are often linked to transgression, to domination and submission, to social hierarchy, things that I think a whole lot of us would say, that's not who I am. I believe in egalitarianism, and I don't think somebody should tie somebody up and spank them and make them call them daddy or master. I mean, like these are things that are almost inconceivable in any other aspect of life, which is, which is why sex is you know, it's it's disconcerting to a lot of people. And I understand it is an enormously powerful drive, sexual desire, sexual passion. And like I said, it is often insubordinate. I mean, Esther Perel, I think, said it very well when she said to, something to the effect of, we'll protest during the day over the things that turn us on at night. So to tie it back to your question about consensual non-monogamy, some people are pretty good at being very naughty in transgressive ways and then, you know, getting the towel and um, going out and, and like bathing the three-year-old. And there's nothing weird and awkward about it and, and making a bunch of decisions about how to run the household and then hosting the in-laws. Like some people are very good at that. But, but you don't have to declare somebody crazy 
you know, if she were to say, look, it's really hard for me to shift like that. It's, it's really hard for me to enact the, the relatively naughty, I guess we'd say kinky or socially inappropriate types of activities that I like in my sex life and to just integrate that coherently with all of the other co-CEO of the household, me trying to support you through your moments of shame and humiliation, the two of us working to raise our four-year-old and our two-year-old together. Those things, I don't see why anybody would think they would be easy to play well together. And so I think it's kind of heroic how many of us are able to frame shift from, well, there we are, we had dinner with the kids and then we spanked each other for a while and had some crazy stuff like where we had nudity in front of the windows. And then after that, we did nighttime and we read the story to the kids. It's wild to me that we're able to do that and not everybody can do it and not everybody wants to do it. And so I think this is one of the major arguments in favor of consensual non-monogamy is that people may well think that this one person shouldn't or I'm not able to make this one person really fulfill such a broad range of roles for me and me for him or her. And so that would be one of the arguments for why people might be able, like you said, not only to play tennis with somebody who's a better tennis companion, but to hang from the chandeliers while naked or be in therapy while naked with somebody who's a better naked chandelier hanger than, um, than I am for my part. <laughs> okay. I, I'm just getting lots of visual images right now. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, when it comes to consensual non-monogamy, I think you're right that it's not for everyone. And, you know, some people have a difficult enough time managing just one relationship. And when you start having multiple relationships, especially if we're talking about polyamory, where there's an intimate component to each of those relationships, it's a lot to navigate. It can get very complex. And, you know, I remember a few years ago being at an academic conference and one of my colleagues who was polyamorous arrived and we were all supposed to meet in the bar and have a cocktail. And this colleague was uh, 45 minutes late compared to everyone else because they had to go back to their room and call every single one of their partners and, and do a check-in. And so, you know, that's just one example of kind of how, you know, there is that added layer of complexity, but, you know, there's a trade-off. There's more complexity, but you have that diversified need fulfillment sexually and non-sexually. And so, you know, it, it works for some people, not for everyone. And, you know, my view is people need to figure out what the right relationship structure is for them, communicate about it, figure out how to make it work. I have found it very useful when people like Terry Conley and Amy Moores, you, there's a bunch of people who are now really starting to launch a, an empirical science of polyamory, consensual non-monogamy. And I have found it very helpful. You know, there's a slight oversimplification, of course, but I found it very helpful when people categorize different types of consensual non-monogamy. So you just gave the example really of poly, like polyamory, which is the one that, you know, presumably involves meaningful, long-term, emotionally intimate connections. As I understand it, there are basically two, broadly speaking, other types. There's swinging, which is where like the, the couple has sex with other people, usually while both are involved in some way. So it could be orgies or quote unquote tea parties or something. And then the last one is I think just open relationship, right? Where it's like, you're like, you do you, I guess not, <laughs> you do somebody else. Um, but each of us is entitled to, to do, you know, his or her own thing separately. And I find that interesting. And, and I'm not aware, maybe there's research on this. And in fact, maybe you've done it. If so, I apologize. But it occurs to me that, that different attachment styles should correlate with different preferences on those things. So, so it, it occurs to me that an avoidant person, somebody who's you know, wary of intimacy, might be horrified by the idea of, of polyamory 
having three, four people for whom, you know, she's primarily emotionally responsible, but may well think that, you know, an open relationship where I'm allowed to do my thing and it's independent might be a very good fit. And this is, this is sort of getting to your question. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on it too, is, you know, for whom and how is consensual non-monogamy a, a sensible option? There's work on this, right? Is it yours? Yeah, so I've done some work on this. Amy Moores and others have done work as well. In my work, I've focused a little bit more on the personality traits and characteristics. And you do see that certain personality types are correlated with not just interest in consensual non-monogamy, but being more satisfied in some type of sexually open relationship. So some of the big players there would be sexual sensation seeking, you know, people who have a preference for more thrilling and risky sexual activities, also people who are high in what's called erotophilia, where they just have more generally positive attitudes towards sex. And then also people who have what's called an unrestricted sociosexual orientation, where they can have an easier time separating sex from emotion and have more comfort with casual sex. Those types of individuals tend to be more satisfied in sexually open relationships compared to monogamous relationships. With attachment style, the the findings are a little bit more mixed. So one of the things I see is that people who are high in attachment anxiety struggle more in every type of relationship, right? So, you know, it's not necessarily the case that, you know, one type of relationship might work better for them. And, you know, there's also so many different forms that all of these non-monogamous relationships can take that I can see how they could be well-suited to almost any attachment style. So, for example, if you think about something like solo polyamory, where somebody doesn't have any primary relationships, right? They just have several relationships and, and they sort of live a single lifestyle, right? That might actually work pretty well for somebody who's avoidantly attached because you don't have to have that high degree of emotional closeness with with just one person. And then also some of Amy Moore's work has found that people in consensually non-monogamous relationships sometimes have different attachment styles with different partners, which just kind of blows my mind, you know, because we think about people having this stable attachment style from cradle to grave and they have it with, you know, all relationships to their life. But no, it's it's fluid, it's flexible, and you know, it can change in response to different relationship circumstances. Fascinating. Yeah. So something else I want to ask you about is the idea of a soulmate. Now, according to public opinion polls, most Americans believe in the idea of a soulmate. And in fact, in a recent nationally representative survey of Americans that I conducted, I found that 71% of adults reported moderate to strong belief in the idea of a soulmate, which is consistent with what I've seen in some of the other polls. So what's your take on that? And do you think that this belief in a soulmate, this pervasive belief in a soulmate is part of what drives the enormous expectations that we often have for our relationships and marriages? I mean, in answer to the, the, that last question, I, I think the answer is, is yes. A distinction that I always find useful in this space is there's one question that is, well, is it true that there are soulmates or isn't it true? Well, I don't know how to answer that. I, I'm not aware that science can really answer that question. I mean, maybe one day, um, you know, we'll discover that there has been some higher power that has been fading people to, to be together. I, I sort of view it as hubristic for scientists to, to try to answer that question. A question that is scientifically tractable is what are the consequences of believing that there are soulmates versus not believing that there are soulmates. And there's now a lot of research on that. So, so Chip Nee did some of the earliest work on that, building on, of course, Carol Dweck's original work in the, the domain of intelligence. Is intelligence fixed or is it malleable? Chip Nee and others have now, including us to some degree, have now looked at you know the extent to which people believe that 
either you're compatible with somebody or you're not. That's a soulmate belief versus a sort of a work it out belief would be, well, relationships can develop through the uh, resolution of incompatibilities, right? That, that you can get into a fight and it doesn't mean you're incompatible. It means here's an opportunity to get to know each other better. And my impression from that literature, which now exists in a bunch of domains, not just about the relationships in general, but about sex and about romantic passion and all sorts of like, if you have passion for your partner or if you've lost passion, is it gone forever or can you get it back? That's some work that I did with, with Katie Carswell here at Northwestern. And my understanding is that in general, it's perilous to have soulmate beliefs. And it is not perilous to have soulmate beliefs because they're inherently bad. If you're going through a stretch where everything's good and you're not having much conflict, and I think having a soulmate belief might make you even happier because not only are you with somebody that you're having great experiences with, but you're with somebody who's cosmically the correct fit for you. And that's very satisfying. I mean, you know, that seems great. The, the problem is... It sounds great. Yeah, sounds great. I mean, I'd take it. The, the problem is, and I think everybody who studies relationships would agree with the following claim, it is very unlikely that that will be the long-term circumstance in your relationship. I'm not saying all relationships will eventually go bad. I'm saying all relationships will eventually have some amount of notable conflict. Some, not just conflict, but like we haven't had sex in months. Like, the, like It's normal for even good relationships to go through these bad spells. Well, now there's an interesting story you have to tell yourself, right? So you're getting this evidence. You believe in soulmates and you're getting this evidence. It's like, oh, gosh, we like we really aren't communicating very well and we haven't had sex lately and I feel like we're fighting with each other. Well, what does that mean? If you're a soulmate believer, you're at especially high risk of saying, I guess we're not right for each other. And that means you're at especially high risk of exiting a relationship that may well be fixable. Now, again, you know, as exiting a relationship has pros and cons. It sort of depends on unknowable information about the future. But, but what we know is that people who think, no, relationships aren't about meant to be or not meant to be. They're about the decision to be together, the commitment to work through difficulties, the, the, the decision to view difficult interactions or periods of sexlessness as opportunities to learn more about each other, to grow as a couple. Those people, in fact, stay together longer and in general tend to have better relationships. Again, in the exceptional case where you're in a five-year period where there's been no trouble, then having soulmate beliefs sounds totally fine. That's just not what most of us will have for the rest of our relationship. Yeah, and I think that's well said. Now, we have much more to discuss, including science back tips for stronger relationships and a hotter, healthier sex life. But first, a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode of the Sex and Psychology podcast is brought to you by our friends over at Promescent. Promescent is here to help you get better in bed. Check out their Vitaflux supplements, which aim to enhance sexual health by increasing libido, sexual desire, and orgasm satisfaction in men and women alike. Vitaflux can also help to increase erection strength in men and vaginal lubrication in women. Promescent's other sexual wellness products include their signature delay spray, which can help men last longer in bed, a female arousal gel that heightens sensitivity, and a line of personal lubricants that come in several varieties. Promescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee on all orders and free shipping on orders over $10. Also, all orders come in discreet packaging to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place your order at promescent.com. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T dot com. And we're back. My guest today is Dr. Eli Finkel, author of The All or Nothing Marriage. Now, right before the break, we were talking about this idea of soulmates, and you talked about sort of the destiny and growth beliefs. And 
Something that I see in my work is that most people seem to hold a mix of the two. So in the recent survey I conducted where 71% of people said they believe in soulmates, a majority of them also said that they believe that a successful relationship evolves through hard work and resolution of incompatibilities, which suggests that you know, when people say they believe in the soulmate, not everyone has the same idea in mind. And some people do recognize that it takes some work, some some effort to make it work. And I think that the pandemic actually helped put that in perspective for a lot of people. So I actually saw that there was an increase in the number of people when you look at pre-pandemic to now who say that a successful relationship requires that hard work. So I'm kind of curious to hear, you know, what are your thoughts on how you think the pandemic changed the way that people think about relationships or the way that they approach them? I mean, I'm speculating a bit because I, you know, even the data that you were just describing, I haven't seen. And a lot of the work that has come out, and I'm impressed by how much there's been, didn't have before and after data, right? It asked people like, how are things in the pandemic? And people are offering their you know, our participants are offering their theories of how the pandemic has affected them. But but really what would be amazing, and we just don't have much yet, is, you know, longitudinal evidence of couples that we were following before the pandemic, then the pandemic hit, and then we can sort of follow them afterward. Like, th- th- those are ideal. With regard to soulmates in particular, I- I'm intrigued to hear that that people can sort of simultaneously believe in soulmates and believe in, you know, work it out sort of theories of relationships. I always had this informal self impression um, that I thought might be worth testing at some point, but I never got to it, which is, which is, I, I think for me, again, I'm just sort of guessing based on introspection, but I think for me, I was always like a sequential relationship theorist. That is, I was a soulmate theorist right away. That is, there were there was going to be some subset of people that I could potentially be compatible with and some subset of people that I was not going to be potentially compatible with. I don't think it ever happened that I, like, after a while, fell in love with somebody who had been a friend or something like that. It never happened. I know that happens to people. But, but then it's like among the people who are above whatever that soulmate threshold is, which wasn't like just one person. It was like potentially compatible versus not. Then after that, it was like, are we going to make it work or are we not going to make it work? So that's a little bit different from are you one or the other? It's like when in the time course of a relationship do you adopt one perspective versus another? I don't think anybody's looked. In general, I I remember forecasting about COVID that I thought it was going to be bad for the average relationship. That is a, a negative effect on average for things like satisfaction, but that there was going to be tremendous variability. And in fact, the variability was going to be much larger than the mean effect, such that some people were going to be much stronger. And it's easy to forget how many of us circa February of 2000 thought, oh my God, it's just so busy all the time. And I never get enough time with my partner. And, you know, be careful what you wish for, because a whole lot of us basically had 24 seven with our partner for basically a year. And did that benefit everybody. I mean, again, the data are still just coming in, but but my guess is that some people really adjusted well to that and some people, you know, really faltered. That that is that the more time they spent together, the more things they were able to fight about, especially at a time with so much stress, job loss, there was a lot to deal with. And some people I bet really dealt with it well, but not on average. Yeah, so it, it was really interesting. We did a longitudinal study last year at the Kinsey Institute looking at, you know, what was happening in our sex lives and relationships. And early on in the pandemic, people were reporting a lot more struggles and challenges than they were improvements and so forth. It was a mixed bag. You know, some people were saying it had a positive effect on their relationship. 
but more were reporting bad things. Now, recently, we did a nationally representative survey through the Kinsey Institute in partnership with Love Honey. And what we found was that the majority of Americans in relationships today are actually saying that their relationship is better, which I find fascinating. They're reporting that they feel more sexually passionate, they feel more invested, they feel more emotionally close to their partner, more committed. And so while there were a lot of struggles and challenges last year, people actually seem to have come out of it in a fairly positive way. Not to say that everyone has, you know, it's a majority, but it's not everyone. Was that longitudinal or was that that one was cross-sectional, right? That one was cross-sectional. Yeah. What worries me, I mean, I find that totally fascinating. What worries me about it is, is there should be a big selection bias there such that you were only able to recruit the people who didn't break up because of COVID. Right. So, so it is diverse with respect to relationship status. We do have, you know, singles and marrieds and we ask people about how their relationship status changed over time. So we are able to look at that. Yeah. It's, it's retrospective recall and there's always some bias in that, but you know, for the people who are still together, they're saying that their relationship is thriving, which I I think, you know, for all the doom and gloom predictions, like that's actually, you know, that's not all that bad. No, that's fascinating. How about moderation by kids? Like, was it better for people who didn't have kids at home? Did you look? Yeah. So we're still diving into the data and yes, there are some differences based on, you know, size of the household, you know, whether people are in long distance relationships or not. So I'm going to have to do a whole future episode and write a bunch of papers (laughs) diving into all the complexities. I mean, you probably remember the joke that was circulating in the opening, you know, days of lockdown, which is, you know, a whole bunch of people being like, man, there's going to be a lot of babies in nine months because right. People don't have anything to do and they're stuck at home with their partner. And then I think it took like 45 five milliseconds between a bunch of us were like, you mean all first children, right? Right. Because right. people sort of <laughs> stuck at home with a toddler probably had, um, other, and we're probably like, Oh my God, when can I like leave this house again? Yeah. And now we're seeing there's going to be hundreds of thousands, fewer births yeah, uh, missing babies, as, yeah. as a result of it. So That's yeah, right. it's, um, not the baby boom that everyone thought it was going to be. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about, sex and relationship tips, right? So in in your book, you talk about some love hacks, like how you can make your relationship better. So what are some pieces of advice that you would give folks on, you know, how they can make their relationships better? I know you often talk about how the average marriage today is actually struggling a bit more compared to relationships of the past, but the best relationships are better than they've ever been. So how do we, how do we get one of those like really good relationships? Yeah. I mean, one of the things, again, that was fun about writing the book is, is I ended up developing, I didn't know in advance that I was going to do this, but developing something of a new, of a new theory. Right. And, and part of what you just said is part of it. That is, you know, I thought an average relationships were just getting worse and that's true, but the best relationships are getting better. And I didn't realize that I didn't anticipate that, that that would be one of the big conclusions of this interdisciplinary tour. And I think the reason why that is, is that we, people like us who are social psychologists often think that high expectations are bad. We talked about that a little bit earlier, but there is an upside of high expectations, right? So, so the people who talk about expectations being bad are saying, conditional on a certain type of outcome. So, so assuming that your relationship is functioning at X level of goodness, are you better off having higher low expectations? Well, you'll be happier with lower expectations, but that assumes that expectations don't exert any motivational effect on the way we approach our relationship. And 
you know, Maslow himself argued that it's really at the top of his hierarchy. He wasn't talking about relationships, but it's really at the top of his hierarchy that you can get this profound sense of, of richness of the inner life, this deep feeling of meaning and purpose with your existence. And, you know, it obviously feels good to have enough food to eat. He, he didn't deny that. But you think about the things that are really, that make life profound. And he was talking about self-actualization. He was looking at the top of his hierarchy. So to the degree that we in our marriages are looking for a type of self-expression, of a, a level of deep connection to help us live more authentic, meaningful lives. And to the degree that we succeed, there's within reach a level of fulfillment that was out of reach in an era where people weren't even trying. Call it the 50s, call it 1800, right? They, nobody, nobody was even trying to do that. And so therefore, what we've done is we've made the average, we've made marriage more fragile, more precarious. We've placed within reach a level of fulfillment that was out of reach before, while at the same time making it harder to have even just an okay relationship because our expectations have changed. So with regard to how to make the relationship better, I argue that there's three general processes that we can use. The, the first one is to you know, invest more. I think I said going all in and relationship science is at a point where we can be specific about that. It's not just, do you want to go on a date night? It's, well, if you're specifically trying to enhance the level of passion in your relationship, then this type of date night is better than that type of date night. I'm talking about Amy Muse's research. And so I talk about ways that we can invest more and be strategic about the way we're really trying to connect on the deepest level. But I also talk about ways that we should ask less. I don't think the solution to having the best relationship that you can is the standard stuff that relationships experts do, which is, is it just about communicating more and more time together and more date nights, I think it's also going to be a healthy amount of asking less. What are the things that we can let go of? Things that are reliable sources of disappointment, reliable sources of frustration. If they're truly essential for you to meet in the relationship, then yes, fight through those difficulties until you to reach a resolution or have to split. But most of the time it's not. It's little piddly stuff that, that we get very frustrated about, or not always little piddly stuff, but not necessarily essential stuff. So those are two options, investing more for the things that we really care about, asking less for the things where we don't necessarily need them. And then I talk about a third one, like that's sort of all supply and demand, right? Are you, are you investing enough to meet the needs that you're demanding of the relationship? The third option I, I call love hacks, and these are quick and dirty things that we can try to look at relationships, our relationship in a new way. These don't require our partner to cooperate with us. They don't require date nights. They don't even require that, that our partner knows that we're doing these things. And they're really changes in the way we think rather than time intensive things. So are we, you know, I talk about some of the basic ones, things like attributions. Why were you late? Well, I have a lot of flexibility in why I explain, how I explain that. Is it because you're kind of a jerk who doesn't care about me? Is it because you've been really distracted with work? Well, our relationship will be much better if I say the opposite to myself rather than the former. Gratitude. It's another type of love hack, right? Like we can focus on the things that our partner does that are sources of grievance, things that weren't as sensitive as we might have wanted. And, and ugh, you bought me that for my birthday. You don't even know who I am. Or we can focus on the ways in which our partner has good qualities or is kind to us. And we have choice in terms of those things. So, so the love hacks are like, can we reorient our thinking in a way that, are, that is beneficial without actually necessarily changing anything about the way we interrelate with our partner, that is date nights and so forth. Yeah, and I think a lot of that advice about changing the way you think would also apply to improving your sex life, right? Oh, yeah. Because you can make those negative attributions in the bedroom just as easily as, you know, in terms of how you're interacting with your partner in, in everyday life. And so, you know, speaking of that, do you have any other, you know, sort of ideas 
tips on how people can improve their sex life based on work that you've done. I know that, you know, for example, you published some work in the past with Emily Impit on, you know, your goals for having sex. And, you know, if you have what we call approach goals, which are, you know, for example, having sex in order to say grow and deepen your relationship, that that's linked to maintaining more desire for your partner compared to if you're having sex for what are called avoidance goals, where you're having sex because you want to avoid conflict or a disagreement. So, you know, the reasons that you have sex, the ways that you approach it, the ways that you think about it, you know, these are all important things for how you develop a happy and healthy sex life with your partner. So any other thoughts or ideas you'd want to share there? I mean, I, you know, here, here's one more or less off the top of my head that isn't necessarily uh, based in my own work, but recommendation, make your partner feel like a god or goddess or whatever gender neutral version of god is out there, right? Like mm-hmm. you want to have hot sex, you want to have um, it, like a very good time in the bedroom, a less self-conscious partner, a partner that that knows that she or he or they are satisfying you, that you find them attractive. That is somebody who's going to be more freewheeling, more open-minded, more enthusiastic. And that's not that hard to do, right? We can, we can uh, express ourselves verbally and non-verbally in ways that make our partner know you are absolutely thrilling me right now. Yeah. One other question related to this. So would you say that the way that you talk about marriage and relationships, does that advice sort of transcend gender and sexual orientation? Or is it more limited to, you know, cisgender heterosexual persons, because that's where most of the research is based? Just any thoughts on sort of the the generalizability there? Well, I think I think in general the trends are generalizable. I mean, it, it's interesting. Whenever you set out to write a paper or write a book, you need to make a, a bunch of decisions about what you will and won't focus on, so you don't end up writing a library. I focused on what I considered to be the, the sort of central tendency, the, the the broad cultural view of you know what a good marriage is. Now, of course, there's racial and gender and gender identity variations on, on those sorts of things. Most of the things that I discuss in the book, especially the, the specific things like, you know, adopting a generous mindset and making generous attributions for your partner's behavior, it is difficult to imagine and would not apply to, I don't know, gay men or trans people, right? Like, I, I think most of those principles probably apply, but there are some unique challenges and opportunities that come from different relationship structures. You know, I talk a fair bit about changing gender dynamics. Over the last hundred years, if we were to just look at the social life in the U.S., one of the major shifts has been the grand gender convergence. Um, this is a, a, an economist at Harvard named Claudia Golden who, who really fleshed out this idea. That doesn't mean that men and women are identical today or treated identically today, but if you looked at the tasks that men and women did in 1921 versus 2021, the and let's just say in a heterosexual marriage context, but more broadly, the way their you know workplace and so forth, the, the differences are immense. And in particular, there's been this big convergence. And it turns out that the extent to which couples adopt traditional versus non-traditional gender dynamics in the relationship also have implications for the quality of that relationship, I think in large part because those things carry baggage. Right. Like if you and I are having a fight about who's cleaning the house and we're, you know, we're both men, there isn't, you know, 60 years of, of, you know, theory and, and I don't know how many centuries of division of labor that, that is on the back of that particular fight. And so I think, for example, a gay male couple can approach those things with a fresher slate. Mm -hmm. And I think that is in some ways an advantage. Yeah. Now, my last question for you, since we're running out of time, I I love the dedication you have in your book, which reads, 
to my wife, Allison, who finds it hilarious that I'm a marriage expert. And reading that, I couldn't help but wonder how the work you do affects your own relationship. So do you apply those relationship lessons in your own life? I mean, the main way they get applied is with my wife's eye rolls. Um, you know, <laughs> I mean, she, you know, she and I have the same issues that other people have, but I get to be the marriage expert. And she's just like, would you stop it with that? Um, no, I don't. <laughs> I, I certainly never do anything like, well, research says that you are doing this thing and you shouldn't do that. I mean, I never, ever, ever do that. Every once in a while, it'll come up because we'll be having a fight and I'll be like, baby, we are living a stereotype right now. And I think it's mostly helpful. It's mostly a reminder. Other people have been here. Other people have struggled. Other people have made it through. I do think there are like meta lessons of relationship science that are useful in a relationship context that aren't really about the content of what we learn, but, but are more about the recognition of subjective reality. Right, the realization that that fights aren't always about what they seem to be about, and and therefore it, it's worth at least exploring, you know, what else is going on here. Not in a diagnostic way, certainly not in a nude therapy way. Although I, I haven't tried it yet, <laughs> but I so I think there are some general principles that are relevant. But in the question of do I tell her what she's doing wrong based on the science? I, I mean, unless I want to get a divorce. I'm going to resist that temptation. Can I ask, uh, do you ever, uh, you know, use your own expertise to, you know, lord things over your partner? Oh, I, I wouldn't put it that way. No. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, people do have this tendency to think that, well, you study relationships or you study sex, therefore everything must be great in your your personal life. But, you know, we we have the same problem yeah. <laughs> that everybody else because does. Because we're humans. And <laughs> Yeah. And, but knowing what the research, what the data say, you know, sometimes does give a helpful nudge in the right direction of kind of how do we solve this problem? How do we move past it? But yes, yeah. I'm, I'm with you. I don't sit there and say, uh, no, science says you should not have that response because <laughs> yeah. that would not go well. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for this amazing conversation, Eli. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and to get a copy of your book? Sure. Uh, yeah. And thank you so much for having me. It's really fun to catch up with you. If people are interested in learning more, I do have a website, elifinkel.com, or you can just Google me at Northwestern University. The book is called The All or Nothing Marriage. If you're interested in thinking seriously about relationships, but also getting applied tips, I recommend you buy several thousand copies. <laughs> well, thanks again, Eli. And thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of the podcast, you can visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Lay Miller and Instagram at Justin J. Lay Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want, and Eli's book, The All or Nothing Marriage. They make great companion reads and you should buy a thousand copies of each. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.